Hello everyone and welcome to uh, the Parama Podcast. James Prescott here, your host. Welcome. It's good to be back. Um, it's 2018 and uh, we're getting into some new podcasts, new interviews. And today, oh, I'm, I'm really excited about this one. It's always nice when one of the guests you have on your podcast is a friend as well as uh, someone you admire. Um, and that's the case today because we have... Laura Perry back. Um, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited. This is going to be fun. Yes, it's going to be a, a lot of fun. I can't wait to do this. Um, Laura has a book out. Um, I mean, would, Laura wouldn't have to have a book out for me to have her back on my podcast. Let's be clear about this. But um, no. <laughs> um, Laura can come back anytime she wants. Um, but um, Laura has got a book out, and um, I've been waiting for this book for a long time, and a lot of people have. And um, it's out right now. It's on Amazon right now. Um, it's called She Wrote It Down. And I'm, yeah, I'm holding it in my hands right now, looking at it. It's just lovely. Um, so... Yeah, Laura, tell us about this book. Tell us about the story behind this book and um, how it came to be written. Right. Well, um, I started writing sort of professionally in 2014. I started blogging and and I found that the stories that I... I didn't. I didn't begin writing with the notion that I was going to tell any of the stories that are contained in this book. <laughs> the stories that are contained in this book were stories that I was quite determined to keep hidden. You know, they weren't stories at that point. They were secrets at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but the funny thing that happened as I began writing the the conceit of my first blog, which was called In Other Swords, was I would take a quote from another writer and work off of it. And so that would allow me to write about whatever I wanted to write about because I didn't really know what that was. And I didn't really know what I had to say. I hadn't really found my voice. And so I started writing stories and, and I found that every time I sort of brushed up against one of my shame stories and told a little bit of the truth, because I was not telling complete truths at that point. Those were the stories that really seemed to resonate with people. And those were the stories that were invariably met with me too, or met with more comments or more emails or phone calls, you know, people who'd not known that part of my story and that's been how it related to, to their story. Um, And then in January of 2015, which is the serendipity of the timing of all these things is so funny. It was just over three years ago. um, I reconnected with my cousin, Mary, and we had not seen each other in 35 years. And we had both been abused by our paternal grandfather. And after I disclosed, I pretty much lost that side of my family, never saw them again. And Mary and I had reconnected and I went to visit her in person And we walked into a police station on a whim and reported our grandfather. And Mm -hmm. so because I was already writing at that point, I wrote about it because I was beginning to tell those stories. I was beginning to realize the freedom that came with with laying that stuff down, you know. And so I wrote about it and the post went viral. Um, And all of a sudden, my tiny little blog that literally no one, I don't think I had any followers that I didn't know, like actually know, um, blew up. And and I started to have all of these people emailing me 
their secrets really, or, or sharing their shame stories in the comments on the blog. Um, and it was my first real experience of me too, you know, which has become such a, a movement and a, a moment in time right now. And so it's very sort of um, serendipitous that, that this book is coming out now because me too has been the past three years of my life. I mean, it's been a continuous me too. Mm. And so after that blew up, I had a couple of people approach me about writing a book and I was in talks with different people and everyone seemed to have a very different idea of what the book should be than what I sort of instinctively knew it should be. Um, and, and I tried to write those other books, you know, I'm a people pleaser. I'm recovering from that as well. <laughs> along with all the other things, uh, <laughs> but I tried to write those books and I, I couldn't do it. It was such, you know, I feel like when you, when you're doing the thing that you're, that is not what you're meant to do, it's such drudgery and it's so hard. And and I just couldn't get any traction. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't seem to get beyond the initial, like, idea. Um, and I kept coming back to, to this book. And so in the interim, Mary and I had started a nonprofit, and we were working with survivors of sexual abuse. And, um, and I had, over this period of time, become a place where people told their stories, like on my blog or in my email or at workshops, I become this safe place for people to tell stories. And I realized that that was solely because I was telling mine. Now keep looking. So, you know, that, that's how you have those me too moments, right? Someone has to lay down that story in order to make the space for someone else to do the same. So I had people in my life that did that for me who were, who you know, were the ones that went first. So I had an Oprah and I had a Glennon Doyle and I had an Anne Lamott and I had all these people who were these shameless truth tellers. Um, and so I knew that it was possible. It didn't feel possible for me. I really didn't think I could survive telling those stories. Um, and then in, in doing so in telling, you know, sort of the first big story, um, which was about my abuse and surviving that and seeing what could come of that, it made me a little fearless on that front where I, I kept moving forward and telling more and more of my stories. And then I got sober and I told that story. And with each time I sort of took one of those long held secrets and told the story, it changed the story the story was redeemed or the story was transformed. Um, and, and I lost that sense of being hidden in plain view. You know, all of a sudden I had a life full of people who actually knew me. Mm. Um, I didn't have that before, you know, they had the version of me that I put out, mm. you know, the safe one, the one with all the nice stories, yeah. you know, she had, she had really nice stories. Um, they weren't true. But, but, or they were, you know, true-ish, but they weren't the real me. And so in, in sort of transforming from being a secret keeper to a storyteller, it, it transformed every single part of my life. Wow. Yeah, and I've read that chapter in the book where you talk about going to the police. Um, and it was almost like a dare, wasn't it? It was like, 
I was joking. Yeah, I I made a joke to Mary. This is see, this is a fun fact for everybody. Don't make jokes with Mary because she does things. Yeah. So I said, you know, oh, we should go in and report him. We had stopped to ask for directions, and she said, well, what do you think would happen if we did? And I said, oh, I don't know, probably nothing. And we went in to ask for directions, and then Mary said, we want to report a crime. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I read it in the book, you know, you were going to your, you were trying to find your grandfather's grave. Yeah, we were going to go dance uh, on his grave. Yeah, um, because obviously, you know, that's, yeah, that was the guy that abused you. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we ended up reporting it to the police instead, which is probably a better thing. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. We sort of had set out to to dance on his grave as like this active kind of reclamation of our, you know, mm. felt like this empowering thing to do. Um, and we were angry and, you know, and it ended up being this, it was a very different experience because we, you know, he led us through our story in such a way that we grew to understand our story differently. And he sort of reframed it for us. Um, mm. And it, it was an absolute, it was absolutely a redemptive experience. I, I mean, it, it's truly um, it, one of those, one of those moments that I can look back and say that was a turning point in my yeah. life that day. That feels like, when I, you know, when I read it in the book, it feels like that for sure. It feels like just one of those moments that you just don't forget, you know, that it's like everything was like one way before it and everything Absolutely. There's a before and an after, certainly. And we actually just had the three-year anniversary of that day. And I uh, messaged the officer, Officer Paul, on that day, as I always do, and Mary, and just, you know, thanked him again, because I just plan on thanking him forever and ever, because he really, he treated us with such dignity, Mm. and he was so um, compassionate, but not a part of our story and so he he was able to hear it and hold it in such a way that um that it changed it for us you know it really it he changed our lives Mm. and the response as well once you Mm -hmm. came forward because i don't want to give too much of the book away (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but that wasn't the end was it you got a phone call um later on yeah yeah, we well, I mean that 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 chapter is the post that I wrote that went viral, so that's certainly out in the world and and people have read it. But yeah, we got we went back to Mary's and we thought that that was you know going to be the totality of our experience. And then the next morning, I got a phone call from Officer Paul, and he'd found another victim outside the family within less than twenty four hours. Wow! And so we ended up going back into the police station later that day and meeting with the victim's mother and hearing that story and um it was a very um uh, that day was brutal that day was harder than the day we reported it was it was much harder to hear that someone else had been harmed Mm. that was harder um but but truly um the fact that we were able to meet with that mother and bear witness to her story and hear about her girl and um you know it was powerful. It was very powerful. Painful, but powerful. Yeah. I mean, healing isn't... Healing is actually quite painful, isn't it? 
I can say this. I, I'm going through this myself right now, in a way. My story isn't the same as yours, obviously, because all our stories are different. But um, I can say one of the reasons that this is resonating with me so much is is that I'm getting ready to tell my story. Um, and, you know, my story is quite traumatic. Um, and I've never, I've never really written about it. I've never, you know, spoken about it publicly. Um, and this book has, uh, and, you know, I've been kind of flitting around sharing it. I've got a book proposal in for my next book. And I said I was going to start writing it this year and I haven't started writing it yet. And I haven't even started preparing to write it, but, um, Reading your book has helped me to is it is helping me, um, mm. and I think that I will be able to tell my story because of your book. Um, so, oh goodness! Um, so um, that's how good this book is, everyone. Um, seriously, it will um, give you the courage to tell your own story. Um, so, tell us a bit more. Um, because um, obviously you've there's other things that you've had to deal with the consequences of you know the um, there's not just the trauma there's the consequences of the trauma and what you how you how you react to it you know um, and again I know that from experience and your your escape was kind of was drinking um, alcohol mm-hmm. among, among um, other things certainly um, um, yeah you know I so I'm a firm believer and I I. I understand this more deeply every day, every time I work with someone who's someone who's a survivor of any kind of trauma, right? It's not just sexual trauma. It's any kind of trauma is that the, the overwhelming pattern seems to be if you are unwilling or unable to deal with that pain, you will sign up for every voluntary pain there is in order to not feel that one. Mm. Right. So what that meant for me was drinking at the age of 11 and it meant, um, promiscuity and it meant anorexia and it meant bulimia and it meant perfectionism. And it meant all of these things that were ultimately really harmful, you know, to me, but felt like pain I could control because Mm -hmm. I was in so much pain and, and there, you know, the thing about trauma is, you know, this terrible thing happened to me when I was eight years old and there's nothing to be done about that. It's a fact, right? It's a fact. And I was unwilling to accept that fact and unwilling or unable, um, to, to do the work around that for a long time. Mm. And so, but I had all this pain and it's like, there are, there are a million ways to tell your story. Drinking Mm. is one of them. Starving is another. Mm. Sleeping around is another. Trying to be perfect is another. You know, there's so many different ways that your story will insist on being told. It just will. You know, if you decide that this part of my story is unspeakable and I'm not going to say it, mark my words, it will find a way to tell itself. Yeah, that's absolutely true. A hundred percent. I've seen that. I've experienced that. I've got my own... I've got my own... My own, my own things that I've, you know, my own mm-hmm. ways that's happened, um, you know, um, and um, you know, mine was overeating and, um, 
you know, and um, punishing myself and not taking care of myself and mm-hmm. almost trying to kill myself with my diet, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that is a, a really common theme through trauma survivors is sort of not only the lack of self-care, but actively doing things that are harmful, mm. you know, that, yeah. that are, that are just harmful. But I also know that all of those things, um, served a purpose at the time, you know, that. I'm not certain I could have survived without some of those harmful coping mechanisms. You know, they worked right up until they didn't. Mm. And, and so I think, you know, I don't think anyone is well served by judging themselves for whatever they did to survive. You know, we do the best that we can with the tools that we have. Mm. And I did the best that I could for a very long time. And ultimately, those things that I was doing to cope with that pain that I was unwilling to talk about, Mm. um, those things became huge secrets and shame stories in and of themselves. You know, I was doing these things to manage this shame story I wouldn't talk about. And then those things all became shame stories. My drinking became a shame story. My starving myself became a shame story. You know, all of those things became more secrets to keep and more secrets to keep. And until the the burden of all those heavy things was, you know, it just about crushed me. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things that... Um people who've gone through trauma have in common I think is that when you especially when you're dealing with the consequences of of that trauma which are kind of traumatic in themselves mm-hmm. um is that you feel alone mm-hmm. like every every survivor feels alone at some point mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and of course the truth is that that's not of course that's not true it's a you know the truth is that you're not alone that none you know that there's lots of people who've been through the same thing and exactly what you think well actually exactly what you've been through you know and the same emotions and the same experiences and the same bad choices and you know everything and yet everybody pretty much who go who goes through this thinks they're alone and there's a kind of paradox there um yeah and i think that's really interesting yeah well i think you know i think that is the that is the the power of me too and the power of everything that's been going on in the news lately mm. is is that sort of reckoning and understanding that that how how big and pervasive some of these things are, right? Mm. So I obviously knew that I was not the only kid who had ever been sexually abused. I I you know I knew that my cousin had been. You know I knew that because she warned me about my grandfather before anything mm. ever happened with him. So I on some level knew that she had been abused, and I still felt alone. It's the very nature of shame to make you feel like and believe that you are alone in it. And I, you know, I I was just thinking about this today. I have a really wise friend who said, if there's a name for what happens to you, you didn't invent it. You know, if you know what to call what you did or what happened to you, you're not alone in it because there wouldn't be a word for it. And I think that's so true, true, you know, but, but when you're in it, that doesn't feel true. No. You know, there's a, there is a, a chasm between the head and the heart on those things. And I can know, you know, I can know the statistics on everything and still feel alone in it. And part of that is because 
statistics are facts, but we don't live in the facts of what happened to us. We live in the story we built around what happened to us. And, and you can be absolutely alone in the story that you've written about it, yeah. for sure. And also, I mean, you have to, de- in order to start living a healthy story, you have to tear down, deconstruct the story that you've been writing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've found that I, you know, I've done a lot of forgiveness for the stuff that I went through in the last year, and mm-hmm. that's kind of dealt with in a way. But the thing, I, the the thing I'm left with is all these bad habits, all these bad stories, mm-hmm. and I can't just, I can't just get out of those. It's just mm-hmm. because I've dealt with the the reason I wrote those stories is gone, but those stories haven't gone themselves, and that's a, and it's a whole different, it's a whole different kind of. Process. I think there's a part of me that thought once I dealt with the the actual problems that, that the other stuff would just take care of itself, but it's not like that. Um, no, I don't think it just dissipates, certainly, yeah. because because the notion of knowing that it's a story and not believing the story, those are two different things. Mm. You could know something's a story and still believe it. Yeah. Right? And so I think, you know, when when we do workshops with Say It Survivor. One of the things that we always talk to the participants about is untangling the narrative. Mm. Because until Mary and I sat down with Officer Paul, I didn't fully understand my story. Like, I didn't fully understand even the facts of my story because I had built so much story around them and decided what things meant and framed things a certain way. And this is all coming from the perspective of an eight-year-old. And so, you know, Mm. the way I understood the world at that age, you know, informed what I believed. And and so what I found in my experience is sometimes those false narratives that you've clung to for your whole life, because that's what you used to make sense of something you didn't understand. Those stories, even the harmful ones, they serve a purpose. That's the thing is they serve a purpose. And so when you're dealt this set of facts that you don't understand, you do what people have done since people existed, which is you make a simple story out of them, right? And Mm. so you can be completely wrong. It can be a work of fiction, but you take those facts and you weave a story around them and you live out of that story. And what, what we have found is sometimes those stories that, that we, you know, build to, to try to understand something that is frightening or bewildering or whatever, sometimes those stories can't survive being spoken aloud. Mm. Like I remember saying something to officer Paul about, um, my responsibility and what happened to me. Mm. Right. And my responsibility in the fact that I was certain this was before I knew for certain the next day, that I was certain my grandfather had harmed other people. And I felt Mm. responsible for that. Mm. And I had never said that out loud before. That was something that it was such a source of shame for me. Like I had so much shame and guilt and judgment on myself for, I don't know what I was supposed to have done at eight. Um, But he kind of, you know, took that in and then looked at me and said, you're a little girl. Mm. And it had never occurred to me that I was a little girl. 
you know, yeah. because I, you know, when you're little, you don't think I'm little, you just think I'm me, you know, that's not how you, how you necessarily see yourself. And so me saying it to him and him reacting the way that he did with empathy, but also kind of like, mm, no, you didn't have a job in that actually no. changed the way I saw that part of my story. I mean, that change, like that, that sentence alone was life-changing for me. And so, you know, when we're working with participants in the workshop and they share and they share something out loud, sometimes you can see halfway through what they're saying that halfway through they stop believing it because it can't survive being dragged out into the light. Some of the stories we concoct around our trauma is so, are so preposterous, but, but they, they don't, you know, they don't ever um, have to sort of pass muster with anyone else because we don't talk about them, right? Mm -hmm. So so you've got all these stories that you've accepted as fact, right? Like this, this, is, this is what happened, but it's not. It's the story you built around it and you never say it out loud so they're never subject to challenge. But then mm -hmm. when you say it out loud and it's met with empathy and and you see someone sort of like blanch, like, oh, that wasn't your fault. Or, you know, or even just me too. You know, even if just the story you told yourself is that you are the only person that has ever happened to you. I can tell you that every workshop we've ever had, it is a revelation to someone in the workshop that they are not the only person who's had multiple abusers. And the reality is the overwhelming majority of survivors in a workshop have more than one abuser. But every single person is surprised by that because the story they've told themselves is that it is something about them that has drawn all of this toward them. Yeah. Well, hmm. It's, uh, <laughs> it's quite emotional for me listening to, listening to this. And, um, Again, this is because of my own story, and I don't want to. I don't want to make this episode about me uh, at all. Um, you know, and I need to share my story. Um, I need to write my story. You know, but it's it's just fun. I just, it's just it's just very strange because my the big well the biggest the, the trauma that set off all the other traumas because it was a series of events for me. It was wasn't just. The, the, the thing that set it all off was my mum's asthma attack when I was eight years and I was eight years old like you mm -hmm. eight years old and I saw her have this asthma attack and almost die um, she was in a coma for a long time oh. and lost her short term memory which meant that she was a different person and my, to the one my dad had married and she couldn't work anymore and even though because she was so independent um, and didn't and wanted to work and was very intelligent and suddenly could not do things that she used to do um, mm -hmm. and she became alcoholic and that basically and that also and it all came from that April the first it was mm. 1985 April Fool's Day um, the first day of Holy Week it was Monday um, of Easter week and uh, yeah and but I was eight years old and I and I did exactly what you did, and I thought it was my fault. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this at all. I didn't. All the stuff that happened to me between then and my mum dying, I blamed myself for. It was my responsibility. Mm -hmm. 
I was the oldest. It was my job to protect everybody else. I I was meant to save my parents' marriage. I was meant to stop my mum from dying. And I couldn't. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and um, I only realised that I had been doing that last year. I only realised that, that that's what I'd been thinking. Because it was so embedded in my subconscious that I didn't even know. And my overeating and my bad habits and... Um, not taking care of myself was my way of trying to punish myself for it's what I'd sentenced myself to Mm -hmm. it was my punishment for what I had done or not done Um, almost like sentencing myself to death (laughs) about a long painful death not a quick one (laughs) and I'm laughing but it's um, I'm laughing because I'm it's either that or crying (laughs) Um, um, but um, but but the point is that you're right, you know, that we don't, um, that we often blame ourselves when it's not, it's not our fault and mm-hmm. it's other people's responsibility and they didn't do their jobs properly. Um, um, you know, your grandfather. Or it's no one's fault and it's just something terrible that happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But the, yeah. the point, the point is that if, if, these stories are closely guarded shame stories and you don't ever tell them to another human being. You, you accept them as fact and they're not fact. You know, one of the things that we do in the workshops is, is have, have the participants untangle like, okay, what is fact and what is story? Because there is nothing to be done about the facts of what happened. They're Mm. facts. Facts are not negotiable. There's nothing you can do about them. They already happened. They're over. So all of your work and therefore all of your healing lies in the story. And the great thing about a story is that a story can be rewritten, but not if it's not told. Yeah. If you don't tell the story, if you don't, if you don't tell the story to yourself that you've been telling yourself subconsciously for however long, then you can't acknowledge it and you can't change it. Well, if you like, if you don't way. ever tell it in any way, right? And so that that does not mean like I'm never advocating go out and, you know, do the talk show circuit and tell your story everywhere because that is <laughs> no. not the no. right thing no. for everybody. And I think it's such an interesting commentary on where we are as a society that we've conflated telling your story with like, going on television or writing a book or, you know, that's not what I'm saying. I think there's a million ways to tell your story, but I think that in the absence of telling your story somehow, somewhere to someone, you don't always know it's a story. Yeah. You know, you don't always know that it's not absolute fact. And when you take that story and you know sometimes those are stories sometimes the the stories that we're playing over and over in our heads are not even written by us they're written by someone else you know I mean my grandfather was the unreliable narrator for most of my life telling my story for me Mm. um and so I think that until you find a way to process and tell your story somewhere somehow some way. I think yeah. there are a million ways. Um, your story, you know, I say it all the time, you either own your story or it owns you. 
if you're not telling your story, it finds a way to make itself known. And, and those ways are almost never healthy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, I think until you do the work to integrate your story as a fact of your life, it's the fact, right? So whatever that shame story is, whatever that secret is that you're not telling anyone anywhere in any way, that is the central story of your life. It's the thing. It's the thing that, you know, picks who you marry. It picks what job you do. It picks your, you know the way you live your life, the way you take care of your body, it affects your faith, it affects the story that I was living out of, those stories I got sold by my abuser informed every single part of my life. Mm. Every single part of my life. Um, And so it wasn't until I processed that story and was able to let a lot of it go that I was able to get sober. I couldn't have gotten sober before I did that. Mm. I simply couldn't have. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, it's why I was able to have healthier relationships, why I was able to heal on any number of levels is because I did that work. Because until I did the work around that story, it was in charge of my whole life. Mm. And that story didn't want me sober. And that story didn't want me happy. And that story didn't want me healthy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think um, finding a way to process and, and tell those, you know, process and take take those secrets and make them stories that you're telling is, is it's, it's the key, you know? Yeah. It's the key. And how has writing this book been part of that healing process for you? Um, it has been a very surprising process. Um, it, there were parts of it that were very easy to write. Um, there's a a chapter in the book that's about, about my abuse, about what happened when I was abused Mm. that I Mm. had said I would never write. I was Mm. adamant about it. I will never write that. That's not anything anyone needs to, you know, and, and that, that chapter kept following me around and it kept following me around and I couldn't shake it. And I really didn't want to write it. Like I was Mm. angry that Mm. I felt like I had to write it, but I realized that in not telling that story, I was giving it a lot of power. I was Mm. still keeping it a secret. You know, I was still saying this part is unspeakable. Mm. You know, I can say the rest of the stuff, but this part's too terrible. Yeah, and I, and having you know and that chapter for me was that was very difficult for me to read. You know, it was, mm. it's it's not it's not a pleasant thing to read. Um, um, yeah, a whole range of but it's things what happened. Out. But it's what happened, and that's so it was absolutely right that it's in the book. It's absolutely right that it's in the book because it's true. It's what happened, and it's what happened. And you know, the rest of the book wouldn't, wouldn't make sense without that chapter actually um you know and even if it would have i think that for me that was the that was the piece that was still going untold and for me to write a book about the necessity of telling our shame stories except this one mm. that doesn't work no you know that doesn't work and so i finally you know i sat down one morning and um wrote it in one sitting 
and mm. you know just kind of it yeah. just sort of came out and yeah. I was like okay that's done yeah but yeah it's very strange that as well because I I remember writing the book writing a chapter of which actually didn't get published in the end in my last book but I wrote a chapter about my mum's death and it was exactly the same I, I sat down and wrote and I wrote and I just wrote and um I remember not looking up really for um, mm-hmm. just writing it three and a half thousand words and I looked up and like it was literally like an hour and a half mm-hmm. had gone by without me even realizing I'd just been writing you know mm-hmm. I just it just it just been coming out of me you know mm-hmm. um <laughs> and that was like quite amazing really um it might have been two and a half hours I think I don't know but it was you know, I just, time time didn't exist when I was writing that. It was just right. Just, but that's the thing about our stories; they demand to be told, right? So yeah. that story was demanding to be told. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and yeah, that's um, that's what happens, you know. And it's and it's healing, you know. It's, absolutely, it's so <laughs> healing when we tell our stories, you know. And like you say, it doesn't have to be for public consumption. It can be yeah. to it can be to, it can be one on one with a therapist it can be yeah and I mean I've had I've had women tell me that they they have their story tattooed on their body I have women who've written their stories and lit them on fire or you know torn them up and put them in a river to be washed away or have you know there there are a million different ways to tell your story Mm -hmm. I do think if you can find a way to tell it to someone that you love so that you can have empathy reflected back to you. That is the best case scenario. Mm, I agree. Um, but if not, there there are still there are still ways to tell your story. I mean, arguably, most art is is just that. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Even if it even if it it's not a um, you know factual. Yeah you know, whatever of what happened, it can be a painting. It can be a song that's seemingly about something. Like I love that when I find out a song I thought was about one thing is really about something completely different. Yeah. You know, the lyricist is still finding a way to tell that story yes. and maybe they're telling it in such yes. a way that like, you know, so Joe doesn't know it's about him. <laughs> it's really about Joe. Yeah. You know, I think there's a million ways to tell your story. It's the important thing is that you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like, yeah, like you say, I think all art tells the truth. Uh-huh. It's just that sometimes we don't realise what truth yeah. is telling. And we don't realise that it's telling our truth. But it is. Uh-huh. I always say that to when, I, when I'm coaching writers, that's what I say to them. Like, you know, like whatever you whatever you create will tell the truth about who you are somehow. You know, it will. It will. Um, and maybe you don't realise that that was true, um, but it was always in there all along. Um, right. some element of who you are will be revealed by what you create you know mm-hmm. because what you create comes from your subconscious it comes from deep down mm-hmm. and the stuff in there you didn't even realize it was in there um, well and yeah. I mean I think I think you know 90% of art is showing up and telling the truth yeah I agree. just tell it yeah absolutely you know and and that's you know I, I have found for me that the more honest I am in whatever it is those are those are the pieces or essays or whatever that resonate with other people. Like, and it doesn't have to be a parallel between an experience that they've actually had. It's just that people respond to the truth. Mm, they do. 
People can. I said people. I always say people can smell when something is true. In mm-hmm. a sense, they can sense it. You can. You can re- when you read something, you can tell whether it's true or not. Because mm-hmm. I've people read work that I've written and say that's not. That's not you, James. That's something. That's that's not true. You know, and I've had to go back and rewrite it and start from scratch because, mm-hmm. you know. And it has told a truth. It just told a different kind of truth, um, um, and so, um, and that happens with other people as well, you know. Um, so, yeah. So, she wrote it down. It's um, where can people get it again? Amazon. Right. It's time. Yep. And mine's printed in the UK, so you can get it in the UK. It's got printed in Great Britain by Amazon on it. So. Uh, <laughs> So you can get it internationally. Um, it's on Kindle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and your website, your new website. Uh, My new website is lauraparrotperry.com. Awesome. It looks, and, yep. And the nonprofit is sayitsurvivor.org. If anyone is a survivor of child sexual abuse and needs help, that is mm. the website to go to. Yes. Do check those out. Um, yeah. And find Laura on Twitter as well. Um, Laura Parrot Perry, she's amazing. I'm sassier um, on Twitter. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and awesome with it too. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so do, do go and check that out. Thank you, Laura, for coming on. It's always thank a- you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, um, and, and yeah, there's an open invitation. You're always welcome to come back. So uh, then I uh, will. Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone, um, uh, take care and uh, I'll talk to you all soon.